Hello, everyone. My name is Michael Rosso. My name is Dwayne Polku. And this is the Film Photography Podcast for August 1st, 2010. It's summer. Summer in the USA. You know, before we get started, as I always do, I'm going to ask Dwayne to take a picture of me. Last time I used the uh, Polaroid Pro Pack camera, I'm going to use that again. And the Polaroid Pro Pack camera unfortunately doesn't have through the lens focusing, even though it's considered a rangefinder. You know, some rangefinder would have that, like, in the viewfinder, you'd be able to actually see a line to focus. Yeah, like a split image prism that has a little line yeah. you put it together and. Sadly, the later pack cameras by Polaroid didn't have that. It just had a, a, a adjustment on the lens for feet. And uh, you had to kind of just guess. And I can tell you, Dwayne, that my guesses are always wrong. <laughs> so I went out and I bought a tape measure, which I actually carry in my pocket. Now we have to pull focus like they do in the movies. Yeah, because because every time I judge, like I'll take a picture of you. Right now I'll judge it to be four feet. I get, I'll eject the picture. You know, I'll, I'll pull the picture out of the camera and it's blurry. So here's the camera, Dwayne. Let's put the flash on. I'm taking a picture of you? Yes, please. This is a Polaroid Pro-Pack camera that has an electronic flash. On this, on this, you know, built-in, you know, it's an, it's a addendum to the camera, a Pro Pack flash, and it's a very modern-looking camera. Get a measurement. Yeah. Uh, can you set your lens? Can you set your lens to 3.5 feet? Dwayne's looking at the lens. The mark. Oh, I, I think on top. Okay. And, and, and that is the closest you can get, 3.5 feet. Ready? Oh yeah. Nice. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go into it. <laughs> Uh, listen to the uh, 715 podcast for those just tuning in first time ever. If you want to know about Polaroid pack films, which, by the way, in a uh, a, a very a future, not so future episode, I'm going to talk quite a bit about pack films. You know, the pack and creel, the pack and peel films, Polaroid. Pack and creel. <laughs> Need to be 3.5 feet from you. Okay. <laughs> oh. By the way, because Mike is too modest, if any of you out there can get a copy of Girls and Corpses magazine. <laughs> can I talk about this for just a minute? Yeah, go ahead. It's, it's called Girls and Corpses magazine, and it's kind of a science fiction horror magazine. Pictures of, of beautiful women with, like, you know, skeletons and stuff like that. Uh. <laughs> And volume four, spring of 2010, 
Mike Rasso has his own portfolio as a photographer called Autopsy Light on Aaron Russ. Photos by Mike Rasso, and they're quite good. With the lovely Aaron Russ in a, in a graveyard with some skeletons and William Hellfire, who's, who's done up, a.k.a. Bill Apresino, who's done up uh, with white makeup as a corpse. And uh, check it out. Mike is a published photographer in the science fiction horror genre. <laughs> and where's this published anyway? This is come. This is out of. Uh, this is published out of uh, California, and uh-huh. uh, they've been around a few years. I'm a big horror buff. I mean, I grew up on horror. I'm a huge horror fan. I, I used to collect Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. I used to read Fangoria magazine in college rather than do my homework. And uh, I never heard of Gor- Girls and Corpses magazine. And Erin Russ, who dates a very good friend of mine, Bill Apresino, called me up because she, you know, she knew I was like a film photography geek. She said, uh, do you want to shoot, uh, shoot some pictures of me for Girls and Corpses magazine? I said, you're kidding. You're she kidding? Said, no, I'm like this. I'm like this. Such a thing? She's like, yeah. The women in the magazine are posing with corpses. <laughs> now, when John Fidelli saw the back, look at they're like you know, they're makeup corpses. They're prosthetics. They're just like look, you know. Look at the back cover. It's Mary Carey, who was a former porn actress, with uh, the corpse of Adolf Hitler. <laughs> It's very funny. It's actually comical. We're just hanging out here. I'm waiting for some Polaroid film to develop. This is the Polaroid pack film. Dwayne, what the heck? Seriously, this is like twi- what happened to that picture? Seriously, what what's going on there? It's way overexposed. What? Why do you suppose that would be? Because the sensor must have been pointed at the background behind me, which is oh, the window. So or uh, yeah, right, exactly. No, you you would be underexposed then, right? It wouldn't. No, you're, I don't know. But for some reason, the sensor was picking up the wall behind me, which is appropriately exposed, and uh, gave it more light because it was farther away, and therefore I am way, way washed out. Wow. Burnt out. To a crisp. To the summer, one of the one of the summer editions of the Film Photography Podcast. Welcome. My name is Mike Rosso, and Dwayne Polkus here. Our good friend John Fidelli is absent again. For anyone that misses him, I miss him. Well, send me an email. I like John. Filmphotographypodcast at gmail.com. Let me know. Uh, does, does anyone miss John? I have a, a variety of topics. A variety. Like. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have? What do you have, Mike? Huh? There's a variety of topics that I'm going to discuss, but not today, that I'm preparing for. 
And one of those, the, the whole topic is... Are dumpsters. <laughs> dumpsters. It's a, it's a very inside joke. The garbage dumpsters outside the studio that have been like uh, a, a thorn in my side for four years. We'll talk about it some other time. The topic will be forgotten and neglected film formats. And in my opinion, those formats are 620 film, 127 film, 126 film, and 110 film. 110 and 126 film, notorious amateur film formats. You On know. the view camera end, quarter plate, half plate, and 5x7, I would throw in my two cents. Say that again? Quarter plate, half plate, which are British formats. Oh, you would. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, 5x7 inches here in the States. Most people shoot 4x5 or 8x10, but they rarely shoot 5x7. So what do you say? This is like a, it's almost like we're having a pre-production meeting here. What do you say you gather some info on those formats? Okay. And I will gather the information on 110, 126, 127, and 620. How about Minox? The, the sub-miniature sub 35mm? You know, I never got... I've read some... There are some cameras. They're called miniature cameras that also take 16mm film, which is the same size as 110. Right. But it's, it's, it's formatted differently. It's mm-hmm. sprocketed differently. Are there films... I mean, when I was a kid, you'd buy like like a comic book, and in the back would be like... Spy camera. There are cameras that are as big as a postage stamp. Are there film formats that are like 8 millimeter size? Like, what size is it? I believe so. I think it's... Um, I, I'm not... Don't quote me on this, but I think it, it's, a, it's called a sub-miniature format, and I think it's... Uh, Half the width of 35 millimeter, I don't know. So I'm, hmm. not really, I'm not really sure, but it's super, super small. The 126 format, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to research the whole thing and find out where, you, where this film can be purchased, who's still using it, what cameras are available, and if anyone out there has any information that you'd like to share, or share your own story, or tell us you're shooting 110, 126, 127, 620, what are the other formats doing? That you mentioned the larger formats? Uh, on the British side of things, quarter plate, half plate, which are uh, sheet film formats, and also um, five by seven inches here in the United States. I will mention this because I th- this is pretty exciting, a little project I'm, I'm working on. 620 film is nothing more than 120 film on a different spool, Dwayne. I didn't know that. I really didn't. The spool was developed, the 620 spool was developed by Kodak, who sadly greedily developed the format so they could sell their brand of film. So that spool, 620, which is a narrower, slightly smaller, but very similar. It's the same size, but the spool is different. So that when you bought a Kodak camera, it says use Kodak 620 film. And I'm not sure, but I believe, I think Kodak started making it with that spool and then other companies followed. But most cameras from the era, 1940s, 1950s, they're not American. Use 120 film, like the Agfa Clack. Agfa Clack. Another Agfa. You can't put 620 in it? Well, here's the thing. If you have a 620 spool, you can, in a film-changing bag, just take your 120 film and roll it back to the uh, 620 spool, which I've done so many times that it's just I could do it in my sleep now. It's just very easy to do. It's just getting over the initial fright of, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? It's very, very easy to do. The problem is the lack of 620 spools. 
You can buy a 620 spool. Oh, 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 let's back up. Let's say you have a camera that you got from a family member, a friend, or you bought on eBay. Like, uh, let's say, a uh, Kodak Brownie. Most Kodak Brownies take 620 film. I mean, there are some that take 127 film. But there's a lot of Kodak Brownies that take 620 film. Let's say you acquire it, and it works, and you want to shoot with it. It puts out a very, very dreamy picture. I would highly advise shooting with it or buying a 620 camera. When you buy the camera, most likely there's an empty spool in it. So you'll need to buy another spool so you can roll your own film. So you'll have to go on ebay.com and buy an empty spool, 620 spool. Or if you search 620 film, you'll see that companies like B&H Photo, basically they offer 620 film, but it's not 620 film. It's 120 film that they re-rolled to a 620 spool. Mm -hmm. And for that price... That $5.99 roll of film will be $11.99. Wow. So they're almost doubling the price of the film for that service of them rolling it for you. Now, for people who don't want to put their head in the bag. Who want to roll their own. Yeah, for someone who doesn't want to deal with the dark room or the, the bag. And I could totally understand that. You just want to buy the film. You just buy it from a B&H type place, bnhphoto.com, bnh.com. What I'm looking into... And Jeff here, Jeff Farrow, uh, he's doing some investigative work. Jeff runs operations here. We're looking to manufacture 620 spools. Wow. And what it is, I was going to talk about this before we started rolling, but I just forgot. What it is, is because spools now are plastic, you're talking about a mold injection in which a mold will be made, and then it will be, you know, plastic will be injected to produce spools that will be 620 spools. Because the cheapest 620 spool in my research, it's like $9.99 on eBay, which is okay, you know, great. You buy the film, the spool, because you want to roll your own. And then when you send that film into, let's say, Dwayne's photo or your, your photo, you know, photo processor, you request to get the spool back. So once you spend the $10, bucks, you'll own it. And as long as you remember to get it back with your, with your negs or your transparencies, You're, you can keep rolling your film as much as you want. But I thought, what if I can manufacture the spools and offer it at a much, much lower price? On a website. That'd be dandy. Is there a market for them? There appears to be thousands of 620 cameras on eBay. Really? Yeah. Didn't know that. So I'm looking into it. It's one of the many projects that are bubbling here at the uh, Film Photography Podcast, or Film Photography Project, if you want to call it. So in the case of sharing images or doing postcards, which I mentioned last podcast, the Film Photography Collective. So there are a number of interesting and fun things going on, including which may be available by this time on the, the site, Dwayne, uh, because we do record the podcast a few weeks before the, the podcast goes live, which is the thought of, well, people have. People have donated stuff to the podcast. Uh, Dan Domi and our friend Alex, our friend Urban, Uh, Neil from Inward Studios. These folks have all donated cameras to the podcast. Neil just sent us $100. Set here. Here's $100. Bucks. That's incredible. Donate, you know, find something to give away. So the idea of donating to the podcast is something that's being explored to the point where I, I comp what we do to a PBS show. If you mm -hmm. watch public broadcasting here in the United States, It's a listener-sponsored organization 
where they have quality programming that people like, so people sponsor it. And people send in money, and, you know, it's like it's like they'll have a marathon, which we're not going to have, by the way. I think we should. We really should. The marathon would be like... It'll be like Cousin Brucey from CBS FM. It's like, <laughs> is it Cousin Brucey from CBS FM? If you donate $100 to PBS, you get... And then if you donate... A tote bag. Yes, if you donate like... If you like what you hear, if you want to continue hearing quality film photography podcast programming, just stop and think what the world would be like without it. That's exactly what they say. Five dollars, well, it doesn't get you much. A hundred dollars gets you a tote bag. So there's a lot of community stuff going on here. First and foremost, people donating cameras. They donate the cameras, and then we just give them away. People donating film. People have donated film, like our friend Matt, our friend Dan again, has given us film, which we just turn around and give back. At a cost, actually, because we pay the shipping. Now, you may think it's great, and you know what? It is great, but we cannot cannot change the reality, which is someone's paying for it. Well, it's me, actually. So the idea of having a donation on the site, which would be very broad, meaning you'd be able to donate film, you know, send an email. I'd like to donate film. Donate a camera. Hey, I want to donate a camera. Camera. Oh, this has to be a camera that works, of course. Or, hey, I want to donate $500. Yes, sure. I want to donate $100. I thought about that. I'm like, okay, well, we need the money to keep the show going, and we need the money to continue to buy things to give away. But I thought, what if, like PBS, if you donated 100 bucks, maybe I'd have a suite of items to say, if you donate $100, you can pick one of my cameras... To own. And he's got so many cameras. I'm not just saying this to be, you know, to, 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 to fuel the progress of this idea. It's just, every time you turn around, there's 10 more. Dwayne, I swear to God, I must have 20 Polaroid Color Pack 2 cameras sitting in my office. Oh, it's, it's insanity. <laughs> just, I, you know, I bought them, and then I, I test them, and then I'm like going to give them away. It's like... Okay. So, listen, I'm just throwing it out there. This is the direction things are going where people are – it's becoming a, a community, you know, a, a community, collective. It's becoming a collective. If anyone has any thoughts about that or check in with filmphotographypodcast.com if you see a donate button, uh, see what's going on. Uh, I, can tell, I can tell you if you want to donate to the podcast, I will test one of my cameras and send it to you. And I can tell you that you will have a ball. Uh, for example, the Color Pack 2 camera from Polaroid is one of the un- most unappreciated cameras probably out there. I use it constantly. Lance from Belgium uses it constantly. Lance, of course, is the gentleman, the artist who does the picture crossing project. He takes pictures, then posts them in public places, numbered. And then you could log on to his, uh, his website and then register that you found the picture. There's a lot of fun stuff going on. I think there's a lot of growth going on. Feedback is always welcome. Filmphotographypodcast at gmail.com. Hi. 
Hi, my name is Butcher. I'm Brain Chomper. And I'm Gambling Man. We're here to tell you about our show, The Killer Reviews Podcast. Each week we discuss movies new and old, talk about our lives, and every once in a while we'll have interviews like Fred Vogel from Tag Pictures, Daniel Harris of the Halloween franchise, and Charles Gibson, the special effects advisor for Terminator Salvation. We also have special episodes like our full review of the Alien Quadrilogy, a Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective, and Clash of the Titans. And we're also very, very sexy. Especially you, gambling. Yeah. Our podcast is available at killerreviews.com. And if you sign up for our forums between now and 2012, you enter a chance to win a romp in the sheets with Big Butch. Our first letter comes from Stian from Norge. He says, That's how we say Norway. Really, Norge? Yeah, he says, Stian from Norge. He says, I just came across your podcast. A dude I sold a camera to told me about it, and it's great. Dude! You talk about the great stuff and gear I love so much. I'm actually waiting for a Yashica Electro 35GS. Thought it would be a great combo to the three Kodachrome 64 film I have in my fridge. I also shot PX100 Silvershade today. Ooh. That is... Instead of me yammering about it, what is PX100, Dwayne? Uh, it's the first generation of black and white film to be produced by the company The Impossible Project yeah. for pre-existing Polaroid cameras. And it's kind of a sepia-toned, very mellow, very artistic uh, black and white type film. What do you guys say about the new Silver Shade against the first flush? Well, we talked about that. Yeah, we did, didn't we? It's a little more stable. More stable? Which, you know, may be bad for some people. It's, it is different, though. I mean, if you're using the film for its total unpredictability... You may want, you know, the first flush. The press release says it has a ba- better dynamic range, blacker blacks, whiter whites. It does. It has it has a greater dynamic range, for those people who don't know, is the range of tonalities from dark to light that a film or every, any given media exhibits. Low dynamic range means it looks kind of low in contrast. High dynamic range means crisper whites, deeper blacks. The second generation of this film indeed has a higher dynamic range. So that was a correct assessment. I'm going to stop for one second. I just changed the batteries in our mixer, Dwayne. It mixes much better now, doesn't it? Our friend Dan Domi, who is an uh, audio engineer would appreciate uh, the fact that uh, I turned and looked at the mixer and a flashing red light was, was screaming at me, telling me that uh, we're losing power to our audio mixer. So we were talking about uh, Stian from Norge. He's talking about the Impossible PX600. Uh, what, what do I think? I think it's great. I do. I do. You have to admit, these letters, I mean... I know I've been talking ad nauseum about some Polaroid, but it seems to be the buzz right now. It is, and different different things come and go, and they're in vogue, and people are talking Polaroid right now, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. This is from Matt Haynes. You guys are a bunch of film geeks. Yep. What? What? I like that. You've got me saying de Google. De Google. And talking to myself like I'm an extra on a Sopranos. He disrespected the being. I want to sit down. 
You know, you got a problem with that? Yeah. Hey, hey, Matt, what kind of name is Matt? It doesn't sound Matt. Italian to me. What is Matt? They're short for Matthew? Just subscribe, and I think I've been through all the episodes already. The podcast is a nice way to make a long drive go more smoothly. I notice your website says, Topics will touch on all film formats, from pocket size 110 to medium format. Do-it-yourself techniques, digital technologies, motion picture and digital filmmaking, and more. Say, say this in a Jersey accent. What? You don't like big film? What, you don't like big film? You got a problem with big film? Big film rubs you the wrong way? Like big film was a clown? You find 4x5, 5x7, 8x10, God forbid, 11 by freaking 14 doesn't, doesn't quite jive with you? Hey, Angelo, this guy don't like big film. Hey, we know what we do to people around here who don't like big film? We take them out the back, we get them used to big film. That's what we do. We shove big film down their throat. Surely an oversight, not a slight against large format. Well, you know what, Dwayne? I think Matt might be right. We haven't really devoted a lot of time to big to big film. That is my specialty, actually. And the thing of it is, most people don't use it. Well, I think that Dwayne, you've been sparing me because if I get a, like an obsession, compulsion about big film, you are buying big cameras. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So how about in the future? Well, when we talked about de- when we're going to talk about defunct films or ignored films, some of that's big film, right? Some of it's very big film. Do you need time to prepare about big film? Do I? Yeah. No. Well, I really don't. Matt seems to want to know about big film. Well, Matt, uh, I like Matt. What formats are there? Of big film? Yes. Well, there's, uh, I would say, 4 by 5, and then by inches, 5 by 7 inches, 8 by 10 inches, what 11, is this? 11 by 14. That, um, that is probably just shy of 4 by 5. It's probably uh, like 3 and a quarter by 4 and a quarter. Mike's holding up a Polaroid. A peel-away Polaroid. And it's not 4 by 5 Is there a different Polaroid back that takes a bigger Polaroid? Yes. Is it the same type of, uh, is it the same type of uh, style? Like it's pack film and you get 10 in a, ro- 10 in a pack? Um, there's different... Um, I think I used to use the 669 emulsion, which is the color equivalent in a 4 by 5 um, back. Well, that probably this, is this and size. And there's some of them were that size. Yeah, and then there were some that are... Actually, full frame 4x5. Well, we talk, it's a different holder. We talked briefly about the fact that Kodak introduced the uh, Kodak 4x5. Uh, what's the name of that beautiful film they put out? You know. Huh? Ektar. Oh, Ektar. Kodak. Kodak. And we never got our hands on no, it. No, we never did. And it's too late because people have reviewed it already. And Yeah. But that's know. a 4x5. So, so big format film, which I know nothing about, is 4x5. Mm-hmm. Eight by ten. Also five by seven inches. They do make five by seven. Five by seven. You have to understand something. It, they manufacture this stuff in sheets. Oh. And they cut it. Cut it to different sizes, and they also will custom cut. Custom cut. Different sizes according to different cameras. You see, there are there are people who make panoramic cameras that are maybe. Uh, you know, 12 inches by 20 inches, and you have to custom order this film. Mostly Ilford does the, the custom cutting and the custom sheet sizing. I believe Kodak occasionally does too. So you, gotta, you have to find someone at Kodak and go, hey, you know what? I built a custom camera. It's, uh, it's six inches by 20 inches. Will you custom cut me uh, Tri-X pan film for it? And you have to see if they'll say yes or no. They usually have a minimum order. And so you find other people with that format, you know, either from right. View Camera Magazine or some of the large format camera forums, and uh, 
you buy the film. But there's no, you know, to say there's only three or four formats for a big film is incorrect. There are many, many different formats. Five by seven seems like a beautiful size it's negative. It's gorgeous because it's contact printable, meaning you take the image, you can print it on photographic paper, and it's still large enough that it almost looks like an enlargement. Because when I give photos away, for example, I went to my I went to my Uncle Patsy's birthday. Uncle Patsy, how's Uncle Patsy, Patsy doing? He sounds like a Sopranos character, right? Of course. Right? I went to Uncle Patsy's birthday party. You had a beautiful spread. Yeah, he's got... Oh, my God, the shrimp. It's like butter. It's like... The meat was like butter. Uh, I took meat. pictures, 35 millimeter, and uh, you know I got them back. They were nice. I got them blown up to five by seven. It's the perfect, perfect size because you go to a store like Unique Photo or go to Target. They sell those little cardboard mm-hmm. holders. Get a five by seven print, slide it in. It's a great gift. It's not so big that they put it in eight by ten. It's not so ten. small. It's not a snapshot size. Right. So five by seven is a. It's a. It's, it's harder to find film, it's harder to find cameras, but there are indeed a lot of people out there who love using the 5 by 7 inch film format. One of the most famous photographers of all time, Paul Caponegro, uh, exclusively used 5 by 7 for years. Wonderful, wonderful format. May I ask, what are the cameras like? Are they manageable? Can you take them to an event or a party? They're big. Is it like a speed graphic? Speed graphic is, f- I believe, the graphic, the crown graphic, the speed graphics are 4 by 5. So you're talking like... Bigger. Bigger than that. These are not portable cameras, a 5x7 oh, camera. Oh, they're portable if you're, if you're big and strong and don't mind lugging them around and can hold them up all day. Portability is a state of mind, but I, wouldn't, I would put them on a tripod. I mean, can, you, can you think of a camera offhand that takes a 5x7 negative? Sure, Leinhoff. There's a Leinhoff master technique that's a 5x7. There's a Corona. Corona was a, a manufacturing company who made wooden cameras at the beginning of the century. They've long since gone out of business. They made wooden 5x7s. Who else made 5x7s? Uh, it's Corona, Leinhoff, Wista. Uh, Wista Manufacturing in Germ- and, uh, Japan, I believe they made a 5x7. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a number of them out there. Wista made a, four, made a 5x7 adapter. So if you have like a Wista SP or VX 4x5, they made a 5x7 adapter to take that film. So yeah, there's a bunch of people. I'm sure there's a bunch of people I don't even remember that, that make 5x7. Are there a lot of film choices, or are we very limited? They're pretty limited. Um, I know you used to be able to get Ektachrome pretty readily. I, I believe you can get uh, T-Max 100 and 400. I know you can get Ilford FP4 and HP5. Can you get Fujichrome? I don't know. Maybe. Wow. It, and there's only a couple of places in the United States that will handle or will deal with it. Like right. I believe Freestyle is one of them. Right. Uh, Midwest Photo Exchange. I, I think they're in Ohio. They will probably B and H, and then New York City will handle it. Right. Now, larger than that, you're talking what an eight by ten camera? The next most popular size would be eight by ten inches, and there are many of them made. Calumet has made them. Cambo has made them. Deerdorf, Wista, Sinar, uh, many many brands out there that have been manufactured on eight by ten. It's also a pretty re- readily available film. You've shot 8x10? I don't own an 8x10 camera, but I've, I've used it. I've borrowed them a couple of times and used them. I find it too big. Can you rent it? Yeah. You can probably rent them at uh, any rental house in the city. The, probably the most popular one in New York City is the Lens and Repro Equipment Corporation. It's called Lens and Repro. And they, you can rent anything from those guys. I went to a flea market and I saw a photograph. They were selling a photograph. It was an 8x10 photograph taken at a convention at the Commodore Hotel in New York City in like 1923. Mm hmm. And do you know like that picture in the end of The Shining where they show a ballroom with all these people in it? Yes. Every person in that photo was in focus 
how in God's name do they expose it? Uh, they probably – what year was it? 23. They didn't have electronic flash in 23. Maybe it was 32. It was anywhere between 1923 and 1932. Um, they might have had uh, magnesium flash. Do you, think it was a, do you think it was like an 8x10 camera, though? And, well, what the Corona, the co- company I just mentioned, used to manufacture what were called banquet cameras. Yes. And these cameras were huge, oftentimes panoramic, meaning a very, very rectangular piece of film, and they were used exclusively to photograph events such as that. Every face was in focus. I, I, I was blown away. Because you can tilt the lens board forward. And to make sure that everything comes in sharp focus. So the lent these cameras during the exposure. Well, you just you focus and you can actually look in the ground glass of the camera, and they have what are called tilts and swings. Right. And you're moving the lens. You're tilting it forward. You're tilting it back. You're swinging it to the left. You're swinging it to the right. And you could see things come into sharp focus. And you pick a, a particular position that that lens occupies, where yeah. everything looks in sharp focus. And that's what you leave it at. You lock it down. Shocking. It's called the Scheimflug rule. Because and, because of the shining with Jack Nicholson? <laughs> yeah, that's why, Mike. <laughs> because a, a German uh, optical physicist named Scheimflug, I believe, is the guy that first uh, understood that. Uh, is there anything bigger than 8x10? Oh, sure. There's 11 by 14 Brett Weston, one of my favorite photographers, who was the son of the famous... Uh, West Coast fine art photographer Edward Weston used 11 by 14 for a long time, an 11 by 14 inch sheet of film. Some people use 16 by 20 inch sheets of film, 16 inches by 20 inches, massively, massively huge cameras. Wow. Uh, a guy named Dick Phillips in Arizona, he custom made cameras uh, of that size for a long time if you wanted one. Uh, Ron Wisner, I believe, is at a business. He made big cameras for, he was in Marion, Massachusetts. He made big cameras for a long time too. And I mean, 20 by 24, there were Polaroid 20 by 20 by 20, Polaroid 20 by 24 cameras out there. Only a few of them, but right. they exist. The 20, you haven't seen clarity. You haven't seen clarity in a photograph until you've looked at a Polaroid 20 by 24 inch picture. Is it an exclusive club once you kind of get to those bigger formats? It's a super exclusive club because you have to usually progress from one format to another. I mean, very few people go from a 35-millimeter camera, gee, you know what, I want to use a Polaroid 20 by 24 It's generally a timeline of both time, expertise, uh, commitment to craft, expenditure of a lot of different things, especially money, to get to the point where you're interested, even know that the thing exists, right. let alone want to you know, explore the possibilities of using one and creating a body of work. Mm-hmm. So by the time you get to that point, it's a pretty esoteric and skilled group of people. Mm. Not, not to say that they're snooty or anything, but, you know, you've been around a while if you're using a Polaroid 20 by 24. Right, no doubt. Timothy Greenfield Sanders is probably uh, the most well-known portraitist who's used it. He's a pretty well-known, uh, he's photographed many, many people, been around for probably 20, 30 years. He's out of New York City. What would you say the most popular large format? 4 by 5 without a question. 4 by 5 is considered large format. Well, I consider it large. It's sheet film, you know? Like, what is this? Is, is, That's is, not 4 by 5 It's shy of it, though. Again, the Polaroid you're holding up. Is, it, is, this, is this considered medium format? Like, hold it up. I have a sheet of 4 by 5 inch film here, and you see the difference in size? Yes. It's appreciable. So this is not 4 by 5 It's Polaroid. But th- this is considered... Medium format or no? The I don't know. Film. Polaroid is an animal to itself. I don't know whether you would uh, even classify it as a format. 
You know, it's sort of 120 like... 120 medium format. If you want to call it that, if you feel comfortable with it, I, I don't know what you would call it. What do you call it, 120? 120 is medium format. Okay. 620, medium format. And I call 4 by 5 inches or larger, large format. Some people consider eight, 8 by 10 or larger, larger. So I think Matt is correct that large format has been highly neglected by us. Yes. It's, it's we've, we've talked more about it now in the past 10 minutes than we ever have. But it's a fascinating... Uh, it's a fascinating format. It's super, super crisp. It's super, super detailed. I even think a well-exposed, properly processed sheet of 4x5 film exceeds in resolution and tonal gradation the most expensive digital camera. I think right. it does. So a lot of people use it because of that reason. Matt Haynes is a fashion and commercial photographer, a people photographer, and he has 1000umbrellas.com. Hmm. I haven't been there, Matt, but uh, I'll check it out. What does that mean, a thousand umbrellas? Uh, like nine dollar balloons? Matt, this shows you ninety nine Luft balloons was uh what was, what was Nina. N E N A. She was a German artist. Great that's a great song. And it was originally in German. Was it really? They they recorded it, ninety nine Luft balloons in ding, ding, English. Ding, ding. That was a heavy organ. I love that song. He came over here, and MTV picked it up, and it was a massive hit. Massive hit. I can't MTV even, did it. If you're not in the United States, I can't even tell you. I want my MTV. And they made a Captain Kirk reference in it. Yes, they did. Yes, very, very uh, attractive woman. Nina. This just in, Dwayne. We received a letter from our friend Rob Nunn. If you recall, Rob Nunn has robnunnphoto.com, R-O-B-N-U-N-N, photo, P-H-O-T-O dot com. Hmm. And uh, Rob's letter says, I've just finished catching up with all the previous episodes of the Film Photography Podcast, and I have to say... And you have to believe me that your podcast is one of the best photography podcasts on the net. Period. Uh. <laughs> I know you get loads of compliments, and it's easy to pass them off as people just being nice, but honestly, the FPP is a great listen. Keep it going and enjoy it. All of us listeners definitely do. <laughs> well, you know, this is the nicest letter that I think we've ever gotten. Uh, this is Rob Nunn. He's written to us before. Rob Nunn, of course, his site, home of the SCL Photo Podcast. Rob has his own podcast and an awesome site. So, a big thanks. And, you know, Dwayne, I've been in touch with Rob. You know, we've been exchanging emails, and I am I am happy to announce... ...that Rob is now an official FPPV. That's Film Photography Podcast Volunteer. Rob has volunteered to write the show notes. Because many listeners have emailed us to say, hey, you know, I listen to the podcast on the road, on the way to work, and it's very difficult for me to remember, you know, a, spe a specific website or something particular about that episode. It, it would be great if there were show notes. So, uh, Rob, thanks, and uh, sort of like welcome aboard as the first FPPV film photography podcast volunteer. Rob also had a request 
could you please produce a low bitrate, small file size version for the listeners with a slow connection? 20 kps with mono is okay. Now, it's, I'm not thrilled about the idea because it sounds like you're listening to the podcast out of a tin can. <laughs> Or on, you know, in a 1965 Ford Mustang AM radio. But uh, I certainly understand if you have a slower connection, uh, you will not be able to keep up with the feed, so to speak. So thanks a lot, Rob. This is the first episode to have uh, official show notes and uh, and have a slow bit rate available. You know, I'm hitting myself here because Matt... You know, I, the problem is, Dwayne, that, you know, uh, you know, we're inundated with letters. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of stuff. I mean, we're, like, really. I mean, this is, I have 50. There's, like, there's, like, no way. Someone's beeping me. Like, no way we're going to get through all the letters. Mike has a magazine here called After Hours Swingers Guide. <laughs> a, no. a nation. Whose is this? This is old. This is old. What year is this? Oh my god. This is a a, a text message from Zach Snig. Ugh, I can't believe this, but my heart is actually pounding and hoping for LeBron James to say New York Knicks at 9 p.m. I'm kind of giddy, like a girl at a Sweet 16 party. Now, Dwayne, who the heck is LeBron James, and what does that have to do with the New York Knicks? Uh, I know very little about basketball because, please don't hate me, I'm not a fan, but LeBron James is, I believe he's a L.A. Laker, Oh. and I believe he's out of his contract, and I believe there's rumors that he's coming to New York City to play for the Knicks. And he, he's like the Michael Jordan right now. You know, he's no, like a thing. Well, thank you for that uh, text, Zach. LeBron. Clearly not a basketball fan. Who is Le- LeBron? Levon Helm? Who? What? Matt Haynes goes on. Matt Haynes, by the way, donated film to us. And the, the point I was making is that I, we're, I, we get so much communications here that I can't keep track of people. So, Matt, I'm having a hard time keeping track of you. Matt sent some Portra, Kodak 35mm Portra. He had some extra Portra film. He just sent us like 20 rolls. Wow. That's nice. 20 rolls? Yeah, we announced it on a previous podcast. Oh, okay. Forgot. And we, we've given it away. Matt goes on to say, this is the gentleman who asked about the large format. I'm a professional photographer. Used to be in the music biz until I got burned out. Got into, the, got into photography via Lomography and street photography. As I got all pro, I saw sold off most of my 40-odd film camera collection a few wow. years ago and went mostly digital. But I'm diving back in, and I also have a blog, cameraandfilm.com. Hmm. Guess what it's all about. Yeah, you know, vintage cameras and film photography. How hardcore am I? Well, we, You're doing it, man. You're doing it. In the mail, today arrived an Ansco Planex 620 format folder. Nice. I immediately grabbed some extra 620 spools and re-spooled some Portra 160 on in, in my changing bag. Color film through an uncoated lens on a big 6x9 negative. That's the way I roll. Well, you know what, Matt? That rocks. Some people love uncoated lenses. That's right. And I think 
that there really is a market for 620 spools at a reasonable price and maybe some re-rolled 620 film. The world is looking at you now, Mike. What do you think, Matt? Should I make this stuff available to people? Matt, listen, thank you for your letter. Thanks for the film letter. Thank you for the film. If you have anything extra over there that you want to give away, please send it on over. I got a letter from Mike Butkus. And you, In relation to Dick? No, I don't think so. Did Dick Butkus, by the way, was... Now, I know this, and I'm not a sports fan, but when I was a kid, the Sunoco station used to sell NFL stickers mm-hmm. of players that you put in a book. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. You'd fill up your, a tank of gas and you'd get like a book of little sticker cards. And then they'd give you a book where you actually would match them up, your your team. Dick Butkus was a football player in the NFL in the 1970s. I believe he was a middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears, I think. And he was led. I mean, you know how like every few years there's a particular football player that everybody talks about. Yep. He was the one for like, Butkus. Butkus. Dick Butkus. He was the man. So Mike Butkus runs OrphanCameras.com, and I spoke about Mike Butkus a few podcasts ago because Mike is a saint. <laughs> he runs a site. Call OrphanCameras.com, whereas if you buy or acquire an old camera and need the manual, you go to his site and you download the Adobe PDF. And it's free, and Mike just asks for a donation. It's incredible. If you can afford it. We talked it. about him before, didn't we? Yes, we did. It's amazing. Well, Mike wrote us, I received a message from someone in Scotland. Scotland. Glasgow? Who heard your May podcast. Glasgow? So I checked your site and listened. Thanks. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Mike, when I found your site and I saw that you have manuals online and it's a donation, I thought it was great. And I thought that everyone needs to know about this because... People on eBay, they auction off manuals for ridiculously... Like $15. Yeah, for something that they photocopied at a library for five minutes. And I know Mike has some grief. I mean, look, we all have some agita, as they say, over here in the East Coast. People taking Mike's books, his books, reprinting them and selling them at a high, ridiculous price. That's called theft. Mike's kind enough to offer these free with the option of doing a PayPal donation which I have done on more than one occasion. He he recommends like two bucks, which you know is much less than if you had to go photocopy this stuff, or go through the trouble of of, of you know doing it yourself. Orphancameras.com. It's um it's an awesome site. So Mike, thanks thanks for checking in. I will continue to support and mention Orphancameras.com. Yeah. Hey, here's a letter from Phil Rouse. A.K.A. Aussie Phil. Aussie Phil, I guess he's from Australia. Yeah, Aussie Phil. He says, What about an FPP project for members? I have no idea what, but give us a challenge and get us to post the results. Could be fun, if not too serious. Nude girls on beaches. (laughs) Well, it's funny you should mention that. Well, firstly, I'll mention that. I had mentioned in my Flickr account 
because I posted a very naked picture of Darian Kane that I shot right outside that door. But it's I, I, I lit it with one off-camera flash. Mm-hmm. So it's very moody, and you don't see a lot. But it's clearly sexual in nature. It's restricted. I put it... You, if you load something on Flickr and there's nudity involved, Dwayne, mm-hmm. you self-regulate yourself. Is it a safe picture? Family safe? Is it mo- moderate, like maybe some topless nudity? Or I guess is it sexual in content where you could restrict it? So I restricted it. And I got a lot of feedback on the picture. And I said, hey, you know what? We need to do an episode of Film Photography Podcast where we discuss shooting erotic photography. Erotica! Dwayne is more qualified. You've been shooting erotic photography for 15, 20 years. I wouldn't call it erotic, but it's, you know, a lot of... um, Pin-up. Pin-up. Glamour pin-up. Yep. And I... I don't do porn. I do not do pornography. We do not do pornography. It's not my not my cup of tea. No. But but like like glamour photography, pen up, topless is fine. I have no problem. Yeah. I think a lot of photographers are very into or would be very into discussing that type of photography because it's not too dirty. Well, if you want to see what I do, can I give a plug right now? Yes. Go to www.modelmayhem.com backslash Dwayne Palco, D-U-A-N-E-P-O-L-C-O-U, and you can see some examples. Or just Google my name. The Google. You know, Google my name, and every single picture that comes up uh, has an image of a, of a glamour model or a fitness model or a bikini model on it. So we're going to come back to this topic. Yeah, we think we should. Because there's a lot to discuss. And also, Phil. Are you an erotic photographer, Mike? The FPP collective. Well, I like to photograph me, Mike. Are you what we would call an erotic photographer? Have I called that because I've never ever been photographed with my clothes off and I've always wanted to, but my boyfriend tells me that, you know, all the people across the street and at St. Lucian's will, will, will cast me out into the cold. We could talk, we could have a four-hour podcast just talking about uh, photographing the model naked and the fact that she's going to get reamed out by her boyfriend. Oh, my God. Who, who, therefore, from then on, will not allow her to do it. So that model stops doing that type of photography. And then, two years later, she's not even with that guy anymore, and then goes back to it. Meanwhile, she lost two good years of her life, of her life well, not be being working. photographed. She be photographed, and she's just, what, what are you going to do? Maybe she gained a pound or ten. And had a child. Photography Podcast, The Collective, Phil. The idea that members, listeners, listeners of the podcast, listeners, will, will, will actually contribute images to what will become a postcard, a calendar, a magazine, a major motion picture. <laughs> and you won't get paid. So. There are a lot of threads on Flickr about how much should I charge for? Should I give my picture to to be published? And let me tell you something. I am 46 years old, and I can tell you, yes, from experience, yes. If you're publishing your picture on Flickr and you want to dump it in the uh, the American Photo pool, which is a magazine, American Photo, yes, beautiful magazine, and by dumping it in that pool, they may use your photo. For God's sake, do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Otherwise, you will have your photographs your entire life and no one will see them. American Photo will probably credit you or contact you. Yada yada. Don't worry. Be happy. Just do it. And I can tell you 
that when I launch this collective and I ask and I send you an email, the answer will be, do you want to or don't you want to? And if you don't, that's okay. Really, no problem. But if you do, just do it. And it's that simple. Or is it? Yes. Take your work and you roll it into something else. For example, Dwayne kindly mentioned that I was in Girls and Corpses magazine. Well, okay. It's an odd magazine. <laughs> but, you know, I was also published in uh, not, not a photograph, maybe my photograph. Um, there was an article on Polaroid running in an in a Arizona newspaper, and a quote of mine was published. You know, get published because you could take that work put it in a portfolio, and then solicit paid work. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about the film photography podcast calendar. Of course you want to be in that. Of course you do. Of course. Thank you, Phil. If you photograph, especially if you photograph models or actresses, uh, you gain an entirely new level of legitimacy if you're published in print media. And I'm not really sure why that is. Uh, I was a staff photographer for many, many fanzines in the B-movie business back in the 1990s, like... Uh, Scream Queens and Femme Fatale magazine, and I was in Total Movie magazine a few times. And when you, you know, when you're discussing your photography with someone, whether it's a model or an actress or a publisher or an editor or a film producer, and you open your, your portfolio, and there's page after page after page of images that were in magazines, it gives you a whole new level of street cred. So I wouldn't worry about, oh, you know, I better not put my picture in that pool because what if they're going to use it in a page of a magazine and they're not going to pay me 500 bucks? Well, then you've got a, it's what's called a tear sheet. A tear right. sheet is an image that was published, and it means a lot towards your credibility as a photographer and being, being taken seriously. So, yeah, you should do it. Do it. I mean, and every now and then you're not going to get money. Yeah. You know, I mean, people are going to use your photo or they're going to publish it, but you should at least have a credit. If you're not getting paid, you should have your name spelled correctly. And then, and then, and then of course, there are terms. Like, for example, if, if there ever is a film photography podcast calendar, the pictures in it will have a term, and that term means that I'm going to ask for permission to print that image in that calendar one time only, that's it. That's it. You're not losing your rights. Yeah, you don't want to have, you know... They, you're not signing it away or selling it. No, you're not signing away that they can use that picture and put it on the side of a, a piece of luggage and make money from it for 20 years. You're not doing that. Actually, Dwayne, you and I, years ago, had this conversation. We went, my, myself, maybe Jeff, maybe Michael Weiss, we went to a restaurant yes. to discuss, because Dwayne for years was shooting on... Uh, our low-budget film sets. And, you know, we would pay Dwayne a, a day rate. But then things started escalating a bit where we had a magazine and, you know, we had a website and we had a calendar, we had this, we had that, we had, we had box covers. So Dwayne, as the photographer, is like, well, can we meet? Because I, I just want to know what the terms are. I know you're paying me for the day, but do you own the picture? Do I own the picture? It's like, I just want to know. Yeah, it has to be discussed. And, and my major concern was the fact that I wanted to, I wanted to own these, these images in case I wanted to, to sell them as, as artwork or prints or something like that, which I always conti- you know, own the copyright to. And as mm-hmm. long as they use them in their commercial venue as a magazine or a box cover for a DVD, I didn't care. Right. You know, so you have to discuss terms. Terms are important. It's the one thing that many photographers are clueless about. And even though I've been doing this for 20 years, I'm still clueless about so many different things. Because it's such a complex world out there. Very complex. And every time you open another magazine, there's another article about, oh, embedding metadata and, and you know, your copyrights. And it's just so complex. You can't keep on top of it. The contracts are dense, too. Where you almost need a lawyer. You do need a lawyer. 
to – and sometimes you have to just make that investment. If you're going to be serious about selling or lending your photography, it's very similar to filmmaking. You know, uh, I license movie. I, I'm sort of a scout, whereas I look for movies to release on DVD here in the U.S. So I either license or buy a film from someone. If I license the film from someone, that means for a very short period of time, could be years, I have the right to distribute that film. And we pay a certain fee for that. But the fee to buy the film outright is a very different fee usually. It's more. And then I just own it. You know, it's, it's amazing, not to interrupt you, but like the Beatles didn't own their own publishing. Some of it, I think. Well, not all of it they didn't. I mean, my, my, Michael Jackson bought a lot of it. Yes, he did. And it's amazing. Like here are the Beatles, which is one of the most famous, if not the most famous rock band of all time. They didn't own the rights to all their music. And they wrote it. And it's amazing to me that that, that, that didn't happen. That's you true. Know? You know, so I mean, and there's no, there's no difference between writing a song and taking a picture. If you, I mean, I think simply put, if you want to start selling your work or submitting it to different places, you should at least understand, you know, what they're using it for and how long they're going to use it. Understand those yes. two things. What are they going to use it for and for how long? And if you just scribble it on a piece of paper and somebody signs it, you're, you're one step ahead of so many other people who don't bother doing that because you should understand that. If they say, we're just going to use it on a billboard, that's right. it. And all of a sudden, it's it's a year later. Uh, we're going to use it on a billboard for six months, and now it's a year later, and it's in right. a magazine. They broke the agreement. Even if, you know, there's a funny story really quick about, you know, publishing rights. I think many bands in the early days were naive when it came to publishing rights, and many times publishing rights got written away for very silly reasons. Or in some cases, they just get sold because the band needs money. And the example is the Romantics. And the song is, That's what I like about you. Hugely successful song. You make me eat. How's it go? What I like about you, you keep me warm at night. <laughs> they sold the publishing rights. And a mint was made because that song was licensed to either beer companies. I mean, they get song no, They get is, no residuals. They get no residuals. But the, the question you may ask is, if they held on to the rights... They may have not done nothing with them or may have not had an opportunity to get those deals, which means it's, it's kind of a scale. You have to really think of it from an optimistic perspective. They don't own a publishing right. They're not seeing the residuals, but they're so wildly famous that they can take that and do an event and get paid. Right. So there's a trade-off. It's a trade-off. If you sell your rights outright, because many Kate, many times people need money. It's what's called in the photography world. It's what's called work for hire. Yeah, you, you need you have to eat. And I've done it. I mean, a corporation will come to me and say, "Would you take portraits of our of our CEO and we own it and can do whatever they want?" Well, my attitude is, "Okay, you're going to pay me this amount of money because what am I going to do with a picture of a corporate CEO ten years from now? Nothing. I don't care." Right. So you you weigh you weigh that versus uh. You know, the money, if you're making enough money for who cares? And if you're lucky, you might be able to negotiate. Like, let's say uh, Trump Towers hires you, hire, hires you, like, we want a portrait of Donald Trump. <laughs> you shoot it. Maybe you can negotiate that you get credited mm -hmm. if it goes in print. There's many things, many ways around it. But I think the most important thing for you to manage is your attitude about it. I think you need to go in well-informed... And confident and be kind of open-minded about it. If you let that go, is it worth it to you? 
And I encounter this every single day in my job, which is managing low-budget films. We have an offer from uh, Benelux. That's a country, right? Benelux? Benadryl? Benelux is somewhere out there. Uh I don't know if it's a company or a country. (laughs) Anyhow, this company wants to license rights to movies that this studio owns, and they want to pay nothing up front. And everything's a back end if they do yada yada. You know, so so it's difficult to let go because you worked really hard on your work and you may not just want to, you know, see it. And the other thing that I think is important to manage is your level of resentment. If you give them a quick sh- short, sharp shock, they don't do it again. Dig it. I mean, he got off light because I could have given him a flash, you know, I only hit him once. <laughs> You license your photo out to a magazine, and you get paid nothing or something very small, and the next thing you know, that magazine is taken off like a rocket ship. It's on every newsstand. Let's say it's a famous magazine, and you know it's selling million copies. And I'm just using that as an example. It's no different in the movie world when you license a film for a certain fee, and then next you see it in Blockbuster, and you're thinking, my God, they must have made a million dollars of my work. My work, 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 my work. My God. And you start harboring resentment. And you fail to realize all the work and the expense that some company put in to actually get it there. And the fact is, the bottom line is not what you think. It just isn't. Just isn't, just isn't, just isn't, just isn't, just isn't, just isn't. Yeah, magazines make very little money these days, especially print magazines. So, I mean, to think like, oh my God, my my picture, I've had my picture in the cover of magazines and I never thought it would happen. And I, and I, and I, I would, I flipped out and I'd call the editor and I'd threaten to sue the publisher and the guy, and people would contact me and go, look, you know. This really happened? Oh, yeah, a couple times. And I was like... The younger uh, Dwayne Polk? Uh, yeah, they're like the 30-something Dwayne Polk. Okay. And, and, you know, I, I was like, the guy said, look, this is a corporate magazine. It isn't even newsstand. So your picture's in the cover of it. I mean, you know, what, what do you think? We're all of a sudden going to take your picture of this guy and it's going to be on the cover of lunchboxes like the monkeys? <laughs> I mean, is that what you think's going to happen? I was like, no. I said, well, then just chill out, man. You got a nice tear sheet. Your name is on it. We're going to give you ex- other work in the future. They just, told you this? Yeah, they just like, you know. And did you? So you've been in this experience. Oh, yeah. I've been, I've been the resentful guy, yeah. <laughs> so can you can appreciate my angle? I, I can appreciate it, especially tenfold if it's a guy who made a movie, yeah. I, mean, you know, I, took, I took a picture for an afternoon and, and lost my head over it. Imagine right. if you made a movie over six months. It's, you know. I mean, again, what you have to understand is how is it going to be used? What am I getting compensation-wise and for how long? And if you understand those right. three things and it's in writing – I mean, suppose you're a photographer and you, you produce 15 images and you frame them and mat them and you go to a gallery and they're going to show them. Say, how long are you going to show them for? What are you going to sell them for? What am I going to get? Is this the only way they're going to be used? And maybe go, you know what? We want to put them on our catalog too. You know what? We want to put them on the website. Understand those things. If, if they're up, yes, just know what the facts are. If the facts are, we're going to exploit your picture. We're going to put it on the cover of a magazine. We're going to pay you nothing. You have your rights back in two years. That, okay, that's it. If you agree, agree. Yeah, and then be cool with it. Yeah. And if it gets to be everywhere and you're not getting any money, we'll say, well, you know what? My picture's everywhere. I'm the guy that took that. Right. 
Like that happened to Eddie Adams. Eddie Adams was the photographer, the photojournalist who photographed the, the image in Vietnam of the, the police chief shooting the guy in the head. Famous. Hugely famous picture. And he said, you know, that has been a double-edged sword in my whole life because I'm always the guy that took that picture. But he said, I would not be famous had it not been for that photo. Right. So, you know, he took, in the long run, he became okay with it and he took the fame. Right. I mean, he didn't get a thousand dollar check every day in the mailbox for that picture. He didn't. It became, I think it might have even been public domain after a while. Well, it's quite possible. I don't have the facts on that particular picture. I'm sure the Google would offer the facts. Do you know the name of the picture? What's the name of the photographer? Eddie Adams. He's long since passed. Well, a couple years ago he passed away. It's conceivable that Life magazine or some some really high-end publication published it and made it instantly famous. I think it was made famous because it was in Life magazine, and just like you said, right. it had such an impact. Like you know, no one has ever seen a picture so graphically horrific of an execution before, right. uh, especially in modern times in the '60s. So it, it had a huge impact on the populace, and you know, I think it's important to just be upfront, manage your expectations, manage your resentment, and just move forward. For there's God's usually sake. never as nearly as much money as you think. No. You know, people no. think you, someone's getting rich no. off using your picture, and it's rare. No, and it's the same way in filmmaking. The trickle-down is just ridiculous. You know, the filmmaker makes the movie. The filmmaker licenses the movie to a studio. The studio has to pay to get it all processed and, and made f available for a theater or for a DVD. Then it goes to a distributor. Then that distributor sells it to a retailer. But there still might be someone in between that person. The trickle-down, like when you see something in a store for $20, it's amazing how many parties are involved. So the person who actually manufactured that item makes very, very little, which means they need to sell millions of that item. You think of uh, an item that's, I mean, a, a lot of, you know, I don't know, a pair of Levi jeans. Millions are sold. Millions. But Levi's could be netting a dollar, two dollars. Who knows? But it's not much. So when you're talking about fringe, low-budget filmmaking, film photography, <laughs> 620 film spools, you're talking about such a small niche market. But that isn't what people think. People look at, oh, the guy who made the Blair Witch, man, he sold that for $750,000 and he made it for thirty-five. Now he owns a big house. Oh, that's going to be me. And I'm like, you know. I don't, it, it, it was not that. The, the guys who sold, sold Blair Witch, they, sh they shot it for, I believe, $60,000, and they sold it for a pro You know, they, they made their money back and maybe made a little money. I don't have all the facts in front of me. It's been 10 years plus. But their payback was the fact that they then worked for Disney. One of the Disney branches hired them to make movies. I mean, they, they became famous from that. And, yes, the company that bought the movie <laughs> made an awful lot of money. But that's the risk they took. Because they had to put the money up front to acquire the film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was shot on video. Make a film out of it. Make release prints. Book the theaters. Do the advertising. I bet you the advertising campaign was, you know, an astronomical amount of money compared to the what it took to those guys to make the film. Oh, sure. So Nothing to do with taking pictures. But, but, a, good, no, but a, really, a good aside, though. Yeah. So, you know. Take that, you know, what do you... There's a lot that? of parallels between the film industry and photography. It's still photography, I'll tell you. There's artists. Artists making, a pro artists making art that becomes a product. Right. And it's a tough juggle. It's a tough, super it's, tough it's, juggle. It's, it's like water and, water and oil. You know what I mean? It's like they don't, they don't mix. You're never going to agree. 
you never going to agree with the business side of things. You're always going to think you're being ripped off, taken advantage of. And you know what? If you can get yourself in a position that you're famous, you talk about like Hollywood stars, they were able to get themselves in that position to command those salaries. And you know, like Tom Cruise. It's like, Jesus, that's such, you know, it's a rare thing to get to be able to become in that position of power. It's super, super rare. My, super a, rare. A friend of mine, and I was a friend of a friend of mine from my high school days, uh, is a personal chef. It has been a personal chef. Right. The guy that goes and cooks the meals for Mel Gibson. <laughs> oh. Tom Cruise. Oh. Uh, one of the guys from Duran Duran. Who was the girl who was in uh, the 24? Uh, 24. Uh, oh, come on. What the hell's your name? Oh, come on, Dwayne. Anyway, so, you know, he knows a lot about what it's like right. to be around those people and what it's like to be one of those people. And uh, I think their stress level, it's being a superstar, their stress level is debilitating that few people can handle. Being a star. Yeah. It's a world that we cannot even. I can't even. I can't even grasp right. it. But I've I've talked first or second hand to people that witness it on a daily basis, and it's sort of like, you know, that this studio spent sixty million dollars, and you're the reason why they're going to lose that money, right? Or you're the reason why they're going to make that money. And if it makes that money, then you have the opportunity to do it again. And if they lose that money, you are most likely washed up for a long period of time. That's and it's like, how many people really can live like that? On a month-to-month or year-to-year basis, it's where crazy. It's craziness. I couldn't handle it. I can barely handle getting up in the morning to brush my teeth. I couldn't. I could sometimes, and I'm like, how could you have, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people employed by a studio, like looking at you, going, well, is this is this the day that he's going to be the screw up, or is this the day he's going to save us again? Right. It's too much. And I mean, you know, you think like these people lead a privileged life, where well, they do, but they're also crazy. I think it also drives them crazy. Lady Gaga, what's that song? Lady Gaga. Bad Romance, that's my favorite song she did. Oh, I'll say Lady Gaga. Maybe you could sing a few bars. That's a goof. Lady Gaga. A bad romance. No, I can't say sing. Lady Gaga first. Okay, no, it's a different song. Oh, Caught in a Bad Romance? That's the one I know. She's oh. done a bunch of them. She's a bunch of You know what they do to do that? They release singles all at the same time. They never used to do that. Lady Gaga. Caught in a Bad Romance. <laughs> uh, creative d- director of Polaroid. You know, okay, great. She's like, what? She's the new Madonna. You know, everyone thinks, oh, my God, I can tell you without even knowing these as facts that her agent gets 35%. She probably has a press agent. It's big money. Numerous assistants. Big money. So when you read, like, you know, a band or a pop star or a movie star is broke, Billy Joel in the, in the 80s, broke. There's good reason why they're broke. Here's an aside. We have a, a wonderful, wonderful convention here in New Jersey called the Horror Chiller Theater Expo. Yes, Chiller Theater. Called the Chiller Theater. And, and there are celebrities that show up there. Now, most of them are people that have been out of the spotlight for a while. Or they were never really, really huge. You know, Val Kilmer was there. That's my point. Oh. Val Kilmer is there. Val Kilmer is there signing autographs. And I'm thinking to myself, why? It's Batman. You were Batman. You were making Oliver Stone films. You were in the doors. Exactly. Charging $40 an autograph. Why in God's name would Val Kilmer want to be at a show charging $40 per autograph? And I can tell you why. He needs money. Because people forget that these two films that he's in per year, okay, he's in Batman and then some other really big film. What if he does two films that year? They have huge houses, huge expenses, agents to pay, press agents to pay. Things are not what they seem. No, they're not. And he doesn't, you know, he's not like an A 
a theatrical movie star anymore. No. Unfortunately. He was in, he was in Heat. Heat. He was in a lot of decent movies in the 1990s. The Doors. Doors. Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> I killed him. That did it for him. Yeah. Unfortunately. Listen, man. Things are not what they seem. You know what? If you're you, if you're me, let's, let's you know a nobody, and someone offers you an opportunity to do something, by God, just do it. Hoo-ah! Dwayne, this is a letter, by the way. This is from our friend Urban Hafner, who's written us many times and also donated a camera to us, which we gave away. Dwayne, yes, the Heidelberg Company is located in Heidelberg, Germany. Oh. Thank you for answering that. I didn't know that. It says, thanks for giving away my camera and keep up the podcast. Urban. Well, th- Urban, thanks for checking in. I'm going to try to barrel through some letters because we have so many. Dear Mike, Dwayne, and John, I, I can't tell you how pleased I am to have my photo included in the discussion group for, for the month's podcast. Last show, and the show before where we discussed mm-hmm. galleries. I can't wait to hear a discussion about it outside of my group of friends, which is usually my only feedback forum. This whole FPP thing has given me Something I have never experienced. Something that has been mentioned by many of your listeners over the episodes. And something that I am really glowing with photographically. Which is the sense of community. And that I can't get from my great friends or other film groups. Or from Flickr. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's such a nice thing. I'm, I'm so says, glad somebody's saying Thank you that. greatly for it. Effing awesome, you three. This is from Philip Rouse. And Philip, you're very welcome. Where's Philip from? Hmm, where is Philip from? Oh, uh, Phil, this is a very long letter from Philip, and I'm sorry I can't read the whole thing. But it seems that uh, we're welcome at his house. Oh. So, yes, uh, you know, I I am thrilled, and um, I'm amazed and uh, humble at the spont- you know, the, the spontaneousness of the film photography podcast, and it just came out of my heart. I know that sounds corny, and I'm really thrilled to to keep it going so uh, I'm thrilled I'm just so thrilled dear Michael and Dwayne I just realized today the 19th that you guys would have posted another podcast I kicked back and tuned in I completely forgotten that I entered one of those giveaways in fact because I've only just caught up so I nearly choked on my coffee when my name was read out oh this is Peter Humble and Peter right now the camera you want is on its way to you, and Peter won the Practica camera that we nice, gave away. Nice one. Yeah. So, cool. Thank you very much. Here's an email from Justin Channel. I know Justin personally. He's a filmmaker down in West Virginia. He feels it's a really good idea to cover what's called replacement light seal kits. He says it's pretty necessary. And there's some major risks doing it. Namely, what I ended up doing seems like a typical problem. Um, he had a, 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 a camera that he bought, and all the seals were blown. Yeah, a lot of that, that foam rubberish kind of stuff that's, that's put in strips and the nooks and crannies of film so that light does not leak in. They can uh, disintegrate over time and become this kind of like almost gooey glue-like substance if it needs to be at that point it needs to be removed and you need to put in new light seal foam apparently when justin Mm. attempted to do it he leaked some glue on his screen and it clouded up his screen that's not good no that's not good so well you can buy that light seal foam that has self of heat self adhesive on the back of it you don't need to use glue really unless he was uh 
like the glue from the old foam as he was cleaning it out. I mean, generally, I, I believe the the modus operandi is you remove the old foam as best as possible, use a solvent-like nail polish remover on a swab to remove the old residue, right. and then put the new foam in, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I'm not a professional who does that, but I've done right. it once on a view camera, and that's what I did. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been lucky. The cameras that I've bought have been uh, sealed. Personally, there are people that do that, Professionally. Yeah, and I would just send your camera to them. It's, it's worth every cent because there's a certain, I mean, you know, foam. There's certain types of foam. There's open right. cell foam, closed cell foam. You know, and they, they know. These guys who do this know the foam you're supposed to put in. I would just send it out. And what do you call that service? The TLC? Oh, TLC. <laughs> CLA? Again, that's also, CLA is a photo lingo for clean, lubricate, and adjust. It's generally applied to photographic shutters. Right. But, you know, it's a general term that I can apply to, to all cameras as well. And, again, I would just send it out. Somebody knows how to do it. So if you're buying something like a Pentax K1000 35mm or a, uh, a Canon FT, even though the camera's like 40 years old, 45 years old, if you send it out for uh, some TLC <laughs> yeah. and for if you get the seals changed, that camera will probably last you another 40 years. So it's worth the few hundred dollar investment. The money you could spend on it, fixing it up, is probably more than you spend on the camera. But the point of it is you're getting a great camera that will last you a lot, lot longer. And you know somebody who knows how to do it fixed it for you. So I did, I did foam replacement once. I never want to do it again. Well, uh, thank you for sharing your ordeal, Justin. Malcolm Kingswell from Wales, UK. The podcast is lots of things. Funny, educational, inspirational, <clears throat> And a very, very bad influence. <laughs> I have just finished listening to all the podcasts. Malcolm Kingswell. And have been buying cameras along the way. I own a high-end Canon DSLR, but you guys inspired me to pick up the trusty Minolta SRT100X and start shooting film again. It felt so good I visited the Bay and started buying cameras. So, so far I have Minolta XK, a Canon FTBQL, a Smino 1, S-M-E-N-A 1, a Polaroid 1000. Which is a Polaroid one-step. I'm currently shooting film and taking it to the local camera store and having it processed and copied to CD. The scan resolution is a little low, but I can always scan it when I buy a scanner. Did I just say I was going to buy a scanner? Did you see what you're doing? Well, yes, I am. You should go buy a Epson V700 because it oh, rules. What a good scanner. Now, I have oh the Epson God. V700. And now, Dwayne asked... Oh my God, can I scan this on your scanner? I'm like, Sure. The scanner I have is better than the one you have. Yes? I have an Epson 2450 photo, which is, it, granted, it's five-year-old technology, you know? What about the scanner that really, like, you dig? It's sharper. Oh, really? The holders are made better. The interface for scanning is much easier to use and more intuitive. Right. You know, it's just an all-around better situation. Seriously, I'm loving the podcast, and you guys are giving photography a whole new kick. Thanks so much. Malcolm Kingswell. Well, you know what, Malcolm? Great. Thank you for listening, and thanks for the compliment. Because I can't tell you how much fun I have shooting film. I can tell you that it is probably, yes, it has changed my life. This is from Ed. Ed Krizyak. Another stellar podcast. You guys asked about shooting weddings and getting fed. And I know a lot of photographers put in a contract about food. Really quick, Dwayne, last time or, or two shows ago, we talked about it. You were at a wedding and you got punched in the face. I got physically assaulted. 
<laughs> At that time, had you done a lot of weddings? Uh, I'd done maybe 20. Did you get fed a lot, or was it mixed bag? It's a mixed bag. I mean, the thing of it is, weddings, there's a great deal of variability in regards to how structured they are. You right. can go to a wedding, and it could be a buffet. You could go to a wedding that's really, really, really fancy, and they just simply don't have another expensive plate to spare. So, you know, it, it, there's a lot of variability in, uh, in how loose or how... how not loose the proceedings are uh you know i've been to weddings where it was a a very very low budget affair where it's a buffet and you go up as much as you want to eat as much as you want to the food and then there have been one where oh your name wasn't on the list we have we cannot give you a a cockle vow sorry i'm okay now then you go hungry yep but you should specify in the contract yeah i have to eat food you know so far i've been lucky and everyone has made sure that that myself and my wife are taken care of. The 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 bride and the groom sometimes they forget. Yeah, most of the time it's just simply not intentional. They've yeah. got more to worry about than oh my god, is there another plate of food for the right. photographer? They're just not thinking about it. He's, Ed says some, about it. sometimes we slither off to the corner and sometimes we eat with the guests. The Italian weddings are the best. Hey man, you see that spread? You see that shrimp? They will make sure you're well taken care of. The show was inspiring, and I bought a Canon EOS 620. Right now, it's loaded with Kodachrome. It seems like I'm wimping out on the EOS 620, but it takes my EF mount lenses. My plan is to do my personal work in Kodachrome. Can't wait to finish the roll. My wife thinks I'm crazy. So, Ed, we'll get a Holga in here. So, uh, thanks for the letter, and um, just tell your wife that you're having fun, and, and don't sweat it. My uh, grandmother used to scream at me, Nana. What did Nana say? Well, you know, it was back in the 70s. I had my Instamatic camera, and I'd be taking pictures. Like, don't waste the picture. Like screaming. Don't waste the picture. Of course, now we know there's no such thing as wasting. It's true. It's true. This is from Nadine Erdmann. Hi, Nadine. Dear Michael and Dwayne, hello from Germany. I am a 25-year-old non-photographer student and enjoy photography since I was in the third grade. That was when I bought my very first simple camera off a shelf in a warehouse with my pocket money. It would qualify as a Lomo nowadays if I still had it. However, it was not before about two years ago that I got myself an SLR to replace a point-and-shoot zoom camera that I had been using. So there is still a lot to learn from me. I started developing my own black and white a few years ago, and it also was fascinating. Mixing the right chemicals, etc. and so forth. Feels like alchemy to me, but I hope to acquire an enlarger in the near future to get more into darkroom printing. Most of all, I'm writing to let you know that I love your podcast. Well, listen, now thank thing, you. We're getting a lot of romance letters. Danke. Danke, yes. Shane. What's your name? Nadine. Nadine, Danke, Shane. That's it's a hit. That was a hit for Wayne Newton. Is that right? Was it Wayne Newton? I don't know. You know, I, come on. I just listened to the latest one this morning, and it made a great start of the day. Now that's it. If if you know talking about film photography, getting out there and creating images can really put a good spin on your day, then it's all worth it. And I can tell you that when I have bad days here in the studio, you know what I do? I take a break. I take a break. I grab one of my 50 Polaroid Color Pack 2 cameras. <laughs> I load it with film. I go take a walk. I go to Dunkin' Donuts, take a walk. I shoot some signs. I shoot some windows. And then I come back and I feel... That's my break. That's my smoking break, Dwayne. I don't smoke. That's my smoking break. And it's probably a little healthier. So, Nadine, you're more than welcome. I can't wait for the next one to be released. It feels so good 
having some media input geared at film using folks since photography magazines are usually just addressing digital issues. Yes, they do. It's true. But if you look between the lines, if we've, as we've discussed, Dwayne, if you just squint and look between the lines, you can easily read the digital magazine because everything you're talking about is the same. The lighting techniques, how to shoot a portrait. Yeah, but a lot of the, the, the technical stuff in digital photography magazines has to do with stuff that are inherent in digital sensors. And, yeah, I ignore you know, all that. You know, yeah. I mean, a lot of it is, is digital, digital ease, tech yeah. talk, you know. But yeah, you're right, when you other things like technique... Right. Depth of field. Yep. Maybe, lighting. Yep. Contrast ratio. Focusing. See, yeah, I it's, think it's, that it's, the stock, you can buy a digital, a decent digital Nikon or Canon at a very reasonable price, but I think the stock lens they put on it, it's, it'll be like a, you know, 30 to 200 millimeter stock lens, mm-hmm. f3.5. A lot of images I see on Flickr lack any depth of field with mm-hmm. digital. It's all flat. And for me, that sucks. I think you need to invest money in a little bit better lens just so you can get that depth of field, which I can tell you, Dwayne, I will fess up right now. I knew nothing about depth of field up until just a few years ago. Well, you didn't, know, didn't you know about depth of field as it pertained to the I went my film? whole life, my whole professional cinematography life, student life. The big kids there with like depth of field, all the depth of field. I didn't know what the... Really? I didn't know I that. didn't know what the heck they were talking about. I shot Ghoul School, a feature film... Shot on 16mm, not even thinking about depth of field. I just thought about exposing it properly. Wow. Yeah. Only now do I think about depth of field with my Canon 1.4 50mm lens. Which, when I shoot portraits, I shoot wide open. For those of you who don't know, depth of field is a distance in front of and in back of whatever it is you're focusing on that still remains in focus at a given exposure. So things can be shallow depth of field, like things are blurry right. behind of and in front of whatever it is you're focusing on. A wide depth of field or a great depth of field is everything is in sharp focus from near to far. So if I'm, sitting on a, if I'm standing on a step stool, shooting down at my subject, and their eyes are in crisp focus at f1.4, by the time you get to their chest, fuzzy. Or re- it's fuzzy. And, you know and, the, and it looks like like people, oh, great poking. Oh, what software do you use for that? Because they make plugins now to do that. Right. And it's like, I don't think people realize I'm doing it in camera, Dwayne. It's more beautiful in camera. In fact, one of the great things, I think, is that different lenses have what are called bokeh, B-O-K-E-G, B-O-K-E-H. Yes. A bokeh or bokeh, however you pronounce it, which is the quality. It's a Japanese term meaning the quality of an out-of-focus region of an image. It's an, it's an aesthetic term rather than a quantitative one. Yes. So it's sort of like, you know, oh, this lens has a lovely bokeh, you know? It's true. I love shooting at one f uh, 1.4, and you just can't achieve that at f 4 or cheaper lenses at 5.6. And you know, it's a tough concept to explain to someone new. It took me a long, 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 long time to figure it all out. So when I talked to Joe Colbeck, who's 26, he's like, "Explain that to me. Why?" So if I open, it's 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 really it's it's something to. The, the relationship between the shutter speed and the f-stop is still something that can be very confusing to people, and especially someone who's just going digital, because everything's so auto, automatic, program right. mode, you know, that it can be a little little, little mind-numbing. But thanks for the great letter, Nadine. You know what we're going to talk about now? What? Your book. Oh, Book of the Month. Book of the Month. Book of the Month. Time for Dwayne's Book of the Month. I don't think I reviewed this one yet. I might have, because we've done so many. But uh, a friend of mine in Utah, Moab, Utah, named Steve Mulligan, did a wonderful book called Terra 
Incognita, and it's uh, his images shot with a 4x5-inch view camera. Some of them are 6x7 Pentax of on film of uh, just different things that he's encountered in his travels. A lot of them are of his native Utah, but a lot of them are also from his student days down in Texas. And uh, I haven't talked to Steve in like 10 years. It's been a long time, but he and I were pretty good pals for a while. We actually rented an airplane together and, and flew over Canyonlands National Park outside of Moab and did some aerial shots. Uh, he's much better at it than I am myself. I wouldn't show them to anybody, but his came out very, very nice. And uh, this book, it's long since out of print, but if you go to Steve Mulligan, S-T-E-V-E-M-U-L-L-I-G-A-N, stevemulligan.com, he does have a website, and I believe he might have copies available, or you can go on eBay and enter that, uh, that name or the book title again, Terra Incognita, and you may be able to find a copy. It's a very, very slim. It's a, I, I like it a lot because it isn't this monstrously huge coffee table book. It's just a really nice size. It's the kind of thing you can kind of slip in a backpack and go on an airplane flight and, and just read through it in one sitting and look at all the images. Uh, Steve's also a really good color photographer, but I really enjoy his, his black and white shots more than anything else. It's published by the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. And um, what else can I say about it? If you really want to see someone who has an eye for black and white and is just a, a first-rate printer still using a darkroom and enlarger and silver gelatin materials, you, might, you, you should get a copy of this book. Yeah. This is, when did the book come out, Dwayne? I'm looking right now. It was, uh, it's got to be at least 10 years old. Uh, 1998, uh, 12 years old. Oh, okay. But, it's, I mean, you know, you can still find it. Like I said, maybe Amazon has it. Steve also occasionally is a columnist for a great British magazine called Black and White Photography. I don't know if he still is. I knew a couple of years ago he was writing a column, and he's published a, a book about black and white photography that is released through that magazine. But again, if you can find this book, it is definitely worth the price if you like black and white photography. Dwayne, thank you. You're welcome. I can honestly say that we're burning daylight. You know that expression? Man, we're burning daylight. We are burning daylight. Because we're sitting here in a studio. It's almost dark. It's like almost dark. I have one lamp sitting here like a, with a 40-watt bulb in it. I felt like you were reading your book. You talked about your book of the month. Mm-hmm. I was looking at Dwayne. I was looking at him. I felt like I was in a scene from Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. <laughs> have you seen that film? Yes. It was beautifully shot. It's all uh, shot with, in candlelight, and everything's very amber, you know, and uh, I feel like I'm in Barry Lyndon. Um, a few things. Firstly, that this is the last opportunity to put in your uh, email to win some cameras, and I will tell you what we're going to be giving away. You may know about this already. If you haven't, this is the last chance. On the next episode, which will be the August 15th episode, we will be giving away a Polaroid 600 camera, which has in it a pack of uh, PX600 Impossible Project film. It's a monochrome film. Oh, I'll take one of those. (laughs) No, good. You need to send an email within the header that says Polaroid 600. Tell me a little bit about who you are, what you do, why you shoot film, and your mailing address to filmphotographypodcast at gmail.com. We also have a camera that was donated to us 
by our good friend Dan Domi. Dan has been with us for a while and was a guest on the show a few shows ago. And he donated a Agfa Clack. Agfa Clack. Yes. Agfa Clack. Agfa Clack. <laughs> Do you want to see my Agfa Clack? The Agfa Clack is a 120 film camera that produces a 6x9 negative or transparency. And it is really awesome. And we're giving it away on the 815 podcast. A little more time with this one. So if you would like to win the Agfa Clock, please send an email in the header Agfa Clack with your address and some information of who you are. And we'll put you in the drawing. If you want to be in the drawing for both, please do send separate emails. Agfa Clock. There's very little time to shoot Kodachrome, about a little less than six months to shoot the world-famous Kodak Kodachrome film. Are they still holding to the, the, the December, 20th, December 31st date to stop? Yes. Dwayne's photo, Parsons, Kansas, is the last fo- uh, Kodak Kodachrome processor. The film is available on eBay.com for as little as $7 a roll. And the next six months are going to be interesting because either the prices are going to skyrocket or really dwindle. I'm willing to bet, Dwayne, that prices are going to go down. Because unless there's some really big push from like a uh, massive news agency or some kind of article published that gets gets the fire stoked on Kodachrome shooting... People are winding down, People understanding it's it's done. Like the fanfare of, of it being on, you know, CBS Sunday morning and all these articles published. Over. Over. Done. So I posted a Kodachrome image this week on Flickr.com on my, my account. And one of the responses is like, oh, really? Still shooting Kodachrome? Most people, I think, think it's done. So it's almost like a secret now. Like, whoosh, a few people still shooting Kodachrome. Well, I have a very small amount in my personal stash i may still have some left you can send me an email filmphotographypodcast at gmail.com if you will just promise me you will commit to shooting it and getting it processed i will gladly send you a roll of kodachrome <laughs> filmphotographypodcast.com that's the website by now august 1st there could be some changes to it opportunities to donate cameras to us to donate film to us to give away to just donate you may have some cash and you may want to donate it. Uh. <laughs> Great. I will send you a one of my personal cameras if you donate cash to the Film Photography Podcast to keep us going. So check out the website, filmphotographypodcast.com. And in very near future, in some episodes coming up, uh, I received an email about workflow and in a future episode I'm going to talk about my workflow meaning you know I shoot film what happens to my negative what do I do with it do I scan it what do I do with the electronic file do I back up the file you know how do I protect my work do I make prints I'm going to kind of go through my workflow and I'm going to ask Dwayne to do the same and if we have a guest that particular show I'll ask them what they do as well I think that a lot of people neglect their workflow and I have a lot of respect for people who really keep it together in that area. And I'm sure, Dwayne, that you have books of transparencies, yes, and negatives, and prints. And like, and uh, very briefly, we'll talk about it. Talk about it next time. But I imagine you must have some kind of 
organization. Yes, I do. So that's worth talking about because if you're shooting a lot, you want to keep it organized. And friends of mine, you know, friends who just shoot casual digital photography of the family can tell you that their workflow is a disaster. <laughs> if that one PC they have Crashes. blows up, everything's done. They're done. They're done. That's it. You know, they'll spend $500 just to recoup, to, to get that data off. Or, quite frankly, it's almost like a forgettable medium. I think people just forget they even have it because they're not managing their their uh, their photography. In, a, in future shows, we're also going to talk about forgotten film formats and shooting erotic photography. Are you an erotic photographer? <laughs> Why do you always say that? Is that from a, is that a quote from a movie? I think... Uh... I think there was a a movie, you know, like the La Dolce Vita era oh. of uh, where someone wanted to photograph a British model, and she was like this ingenue. And she oh, was like, really? Oh, are you an erotic? Like he was a photographer, and she wanted to know what kind of work that he did, and she said, Oh, are you an erotic photographer? I am proud to say that, but I've shot many films, motion pictures that were considered erotic, that here in the states play on what's known as late night cable. Skinamax. Yes, it's called Cinemax. It's an offshoot of HBO. But they call it, the fans call it Skinemax. Because it's got so much skin on it. And I've produced so many of these shows, probably a hundred. And on almost every one of those shows, there was Dwayne shooting stills. I was on almost all of them, yeah. And like there'd be an actress, like someone like Anushka, who in between scenes, like some girls are just easy to work with, where you'd be like, let's go do a photo shoot. Anush- Anushka was a joy to work with. Like we should do just a show about uh, the films that you've produced and what it was like to be a still photographer and talk about just the different shoots that I did. I remember once, it was probably one of the Anushka ones, where you set mm-hmm. up lights in the woods. In like the, you, oh. brought, you brought like this little kit, and I think... That Rick Wright, who owned the property, used to have like a plug on a tree. He did. He, for some reason, when he built this house, he ran an electrical power line out to these woods adjacent <laughs> to his house, about a good 30, 40 yards out from his house. And I used to bring in, uh, you know, a Novatron 1,000-watt power pack and three or four heads and just, you know, light light the woods. And I'd right. use a fast enough shutter speed that it wouldn't record the ambient light during the day. Right. So all of a sudden, the picture, even though I took it in the middle of the day, would look like night with like red trees and, and yellow right. trees. Right. And I would use like an umbrella or a softbox to light, light the girls. And right. it, oh, I did some great shots out there. And I wouldn't think anything of it because many of these films, especially as, as, as time marched on and my responsibilities became more businesslike and I had to be a little more ball and chain to my desk here at the studio... I'd visit the set, and you know there'd be like the the film crew, and there'd be like Dwayne, you know, doing his thing. And you know, if I have to think back, because I guess hindsight is always twenty twenty. Is that what they say? Yes. You know, Dwayne, if I can compliment you, you went in there, and it wasn't like you just did the job. Like it wasn't like you were just like you know, you took advantage of an opportunity and probably went above and beyond to like hump all that stuff into the woods to actually set up such a shot. Well, I'm glad you, you said that, and it, I, I t- appreciate the compliment because 95% of the time I went above and beyond, and the reason why I said, I'd say, I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to take the shots that I'm supposed to take, and then I'm going to do something that's going to be really cool that I'm proud of. Right. Because, okay, it's a low-budget film, and some people would consider it to be something less of a stature than a Hollywood feature, but I always looked at it like, you know, people are going to look at this someday. Right. You know, the people collect these movies. 
they right. cl- they, they right. look at look, look at it as as a body of work, and why not try to to do something that that's really really cool? And I don't know why I went I went to, I went to great lengths. I lugged so much gear so many times, so Absolutely. many dozens of times, crates of gear by myself with no nobody assisting me, and I just I I you know I just I have a body of work that I, that I think is really really cool. And that's the reason why I did it. And on a shoot like that, everyone does have a job designation. So if if you're a cinematographer or a grip or director of photography, the director, everyone does their own job, very contained. So when you show up in your car, no one's going to help you. No, no, no. Like no one. The thing, I, I'd never been on a film set before I began working with your projects, and right. I, I, I never understood that. When you get there, everybody has a job, and every, everybody's in their own little universe, right. and they don't want to be bothered. They may not have even seen you. They may not even see you. They don't even know who you are. They may not even ask your name. They may not even care who you are because they're doing their own job. Right. And it's a finite period of time during that day where they've got to get their thing done. So it doesn't matter that I've got four crates of gear. Hey, man, I, that's what I brought. I got If it's up a 300-foot hill in the heat of the summer, well, then I have to do it. Right. And I never complained about it. It was like – No, no, no. You, your know, jo- you did your job. You know why? It's because I was doing my job and I was right. around so many beautiful women. <laughs> right. I mean I can't even begin to mention how many – couple of hundred women that I photographed that were really, really beautiful. Right. That What's to complain about? I mean, life could be worse. I Absolutely. could have been strapped to a desk in Wall Street, losing somebody's money, wondering how I'm going to cover it. Right. Now, it's true. We'll just touch upon this because I, I think it's funny. It's true that the amount of freedom you had on the set to actually interact with the cast, that was based on who the director was? Very much so based on who the director was because some directors are very, very fiercely controlling and some are just, yeah, Dwayne's cool. Let, right. him, let him shoot. You know, we're not going to be using her for three hours. Go do what you have to do. Right. And that's a joy. You know? I, I always think about the Joe Sarno shoot, which is it true that you kind of camped out up in the, some cabin? So you were able to – you lived with – wasn't the I, cast and crew like living there for like three days? I got there. It was a very far drive, and a, and a room was not set aside for me. Right. And so I kind of had to get there early in the morning, shoot, and then go home and come back the next is day. Is that what you did? Yeah. That's that, what you did? It was brutal. You couldn't stay on a couch or something? They – I'm not a good couch sleeper. Oh. Sleep apnea. So anyway, uh, it's like, um, you know. But there, Was that a pleasant experience, that particular Joe one? Sarno was very accommodating. Joe Sarno used to come to me every day yes. at the end of the shoot and say, I want to thank you for taking these stills. It helps to sell the movie. And no one ever came up to me and thanked me for doing a job that was hired for. But he did. He was a gentleman. Joe Sarno, who unfortunately passed away at 89 years old uh, this past April, uh, he is known as the Bergman of 42nd Street. His obituary was published in Time Magazine, the Print Magazine, and the New York Times, the Print New York Times, and he received a half page. He is really highly regarded as a artist and filmmaker, which I always knew, but when you see it in print in Time Magazine, and then to, to tell, to, to say what a prince he was, the fact that this world-renowned director, he would. He would. He came up to you and thanked you. Every day. For oh, ha- oh, thanks for doing a good job today. I know, I know, I know like, because, you know, when you're a still photographer and you're working on a film set, you're basically working around every other person there. And, and if you're you not liked, are you're you? You're not liked because... You're ev- interrupting their flow. Exactly. If, you know, you need, f- if you need five seconds to do a still photo, you have to ask for that five seconds and you have to, and they don't give it to you. You have to ask again, then ask again and ask again over and over again all day long. So you're not well liked. It is like you're hated, but you're an inconvenience. You're a necessary inconvenience. And Joe never looked at it like that. He looked at it like, 
hey, let the guy do his job. We need still photos to do a poster. Let him right. do his job. You know, and it's a sign of someone who's experienced and understands that. The art of on-set photography in the low-budget arena, it's it's completely crumbled, by the way, Dwayne. Yeah, it has. Um, and I learned early on that if you're producing a motion picture, you better have high-quality stills if you want to sell that movie. It used to be, and it still is to many respect, in a, in a much higher arena of selling to a TV channel or to a foreign territory. If you're American, you want to sell your film to England, you better have some stills. I'm not talking about freeze frames from an avid editing system or digital, you know, the digital still off of the movie. You better have quality still images that were shot by a separate photographer. And I am thrilled that we actually did that. You know, now so many people are taking these. Uh these high-end 35-millimeter digital SLRs that actually shoot high-definition video. Yes. And they're just doing both at the same time, which is great. Yes. But when you have someone who shoots stills, that pick, that person is thinking yes. in a different visual timeline and a different visual mindset than someone who's shooting a motion picture. And they may say, you know what? I would love to take those two actors and put them over by that tree for five minutes because that's a great still photo. And the person who's directing the movie isn't thinking that way. They're thinking about their scene that they have to get. So having a separate person there, right? that's the reason why a studio who makes a huge movie has a separate person because that person is thinking along those lines. Right. You know, they, they have a different a different task in mind, so it's an important thing to have someone there to uh, who's competent in that arena, you know, I think anyway. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to cover this in more detail when we talk about erotic... Photography. Yeah, I think it's a good... Because, Dwayne, you've experienced on-set, on actual movies, uh, and some reasonably budget, but reasonably reasonably budgeted films. Like, I think about that Carlitos Angels. That was like... That was a, I, loved, I, loved doing, I loved shooting on Carlitos Angels, though. That was, uh, that was so like much a, fun. Like a lot of locations. A lot of locations. Outside, inside, in studios. It was, it was like doing an HBO film. It was so yeah. complex. Like so the complicated. Penthouse model was there. Yeah. Penthouse, uh, she was a runner-up run for Penthouse Pet of the Year. Uh, a lot of other local girls, uh, really, really some beautiful, beautiful women were on that. Um, and a lot of extras. Yep. Shooting in strip clubs, bars, parking lots, houses, apartment complexes, bridges, streets, New York City. Crazy shoot. Craziness, man. And then, of course, you have the studio shoots you've done over the years. Many, many studio shoots right in this very room. Right. So lots of experiences there. And we haven't even mentioned the fact that the, the ins and outs, no pun intended, really, the ins and outs of the fact that you're dealing with a model who's going to basically strip down naked. Yes. It's just so work, you know, shooting erotic photography and films. It's, 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 it's work, which a person viewing the picture or looking at the image can't quite grasp because it's erotic. <laughs> I've also been on you know, sets on films that were shot in California, which were much, much harder than what you've done. Okay. Uh, just, just taking photographs of the actresses, a lot of them for publicity reasons. And to them, just open sexuality, it just, it, it, it's nothing. It, it means nothing to them. It's right. a job. Right. You Absolutely. Know? And it's a little daunting if you're like, oh my God, there's, there's people over there and they're they're doing it. It's, it's a little uncomfortable. I right. have to tell you, it was a little uncomfortable. But well, I hope you'll share those stories as well. I will. So, well, this is uh, our um, one of our big summer shows, August 1st, in the blazing hot New Jersey weather here on the East Coast of the United States. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Film Photography Podcast worldwide, and I really hope that uh, someday I could meet some of you folks. I should mention, because I don't think we mentioned this show, the PDN show 
is PDN Expo coming up in New York City in October. I don't have it here, but if you Google, if you use the Google, the Google, uh, just search PDN Expo New York, and you'll come to their website. It's at the Jacob Javits Center. It's, I believe, the third week of October. Dwayne and I will be there on Saturday, uh, and anyone who can wants to go on an expedition to New York, a photo expedition. So email me, filmphotographypodcast at gmail.com. It's not out of the question. Well, it's a heck of a lot easier for us. It's not out of the question for me, maybe Dwayne, go to New York both days and maybe one day go to the show, another day just walk around the streets of New York, go to B&H Photo, go grab some diner food, you know, kind of make a day out of it. So if there's any podcast listeners who kind of want to do a little group meeting, you can think of it as the FPP annual convention huh. with us using the PDN as a host. Hey, thanks, PDN, for giving this great, this great place. Because if you remember, the, the Jacob Javits Center is so massive. It's unbel- It's football fields inside. It's huge. And they have like these massive couch areas where you can just hang. We can like, pick a section and just like just hang out. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's one of my favorite convention centers I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's nice. It's really great. Uh, last year was pouring. Do you remember? Was it pouring? It was raining out. Yeah. For a period of time. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to it, and it'd be so much better if uh, I could, you know, meet some listeners. So any interest in there, you know, t- you know, throw me a line, filmphotographypodcast at gmail dot com. Let me know what you think, and uh, maybe we could, you know, have a little bit, of, have have a little get together and have have a laugh. Certainly have a laugh. So. <laughs> Well, till next time, thanks for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, we'll see everyone in two weeks. Two more weeks. Stay tuned. Okay. That was great. Outstanding.
Just time to 